This is the Mahabharata Podcast, episode 82, Blowback. Last episode, it finally happened. The bad guy whose inglorious end was predicted since his birth back in episode 5 has finally been defeated. Revenge, which has been a potent motivating force for much of the epic, is finally sated. At tremendous personal cost, the Pandavas have fulfilled all those oaths they had sworn prior to the war. Now they must turn their faces to the responsibilities they inherited along with the spoils, including a disgruntled army of widows who must somehow be comforted. But before we move on, I'd like to give some thought to some aspects of Duryodhana's downfall. First of all, I find it interesting that the fact that he fled the battlefield never seems to be mentioned. Instead, we are distracted by the spectacle of a winner-takes-all deathmatch, and we believe them when they say that he lived and died like a good Kshatriya. It seems to me that if one of the Pandavas had run from battle, they'd have wrung their hands over it endlessly. But maybe that's what divides the good guys from the bad. We live by a higher standard. The other thing that I really have no explanation for is the utility of a lake for Duryodhana's hiding place. Why would he choose water to conceal himself in? Couldn't he have hidden in a house or a hole in the ground? Maybe he resorted to water because the earth had already shown herself to have taken the Pandava's side. I know I've got a lot of really smart listeners, so if you have any other ideas about this or anything else, please leave me a note at my blog at mahabharatapodcast.com. Getting back to the story, we left off with Bhima being the first to congratulate his eldest brother for the great victory they had won that day. Sanjay continues to narrate, so he must be relying on his divine vision rather than personal recollection. He said that following Bhima's speech, they all celebrated their victory. They cheered and hollered and congratulated each other for all they had accomplished. They especially praised Bhima for defeating the enemy in single combat. Krishna then chimed in, This sinful, shameless, and covetous wretch, surrounded by sinful counselors and ignoring the advice of the wise, has met his death. Even though he was warned repeatedly by his friends to give the Pandavas their share, he refused and was killed. But now he's dead, so let's not waste our breath on him. Let's head out now and forget about this wicked creature. I was beginning to think Bhima's kicks had done him in, but apparently Duryodhana had come to at some point and had heard Krishna's criticism. It made him so mad that he sat himself up, using his arms to prop himself, and glared angrily at Krishna. When everyone noticed that this snake-like being still lived, he began to reprimand Krishna. Duryodhana said, O son of Kamsa's slave, have you no shame? Have you already forgotten that I was struck down most unfairly? And it was you who authorized him to hit below the belt? Do you think I didn't notice your signals to Arjun and then Bhima? After all the tricks and cheating you've done to win against opponents who never did anything wrong, don't you feel the least bit ashamed? It was you who used Sikandin to kill Bhishma, and it was you who suggested they kill the elephant Ashvataman. Do you think I didn't know that? Who in this war was more sinful than you? If you had fought according to the rules and fought fairly, you would have never defeated us. Krishna replied, You have been slain, along with your brothers, sons, kinsmen, friends, and followers, only as a consequence of your sinful ways. It is through your wicked deeds that Bhishma and Drona were slain. Remember that I begged you to give the Pandavas their share, but you refused, even though you knew it would mean your downfall. Everything you blame on me is really your own damned fault. You ignored the advice of the wise, you disrespected your elders, and in your greed and arrogance you did many unrighteous things. And now you are bearing the consequences of those actions. Duryodhana then changed the subject, shifting from anger to gloating. He said, You know, I was well educated, I gave gifts generously, I governed over the entire earth, and I have met the most fortunate of ends, to die in battle. 
So who is as fortunate as I? I know that all my brothers and friends have already entered paradise, and I will soon be joining them. As for you guys, you're all screwed. You still have many duties to fulfill, and shall live in this unhappy world, torn by grief. And with those words, our old friend Duryodhana got the last laugh. He literally expired as soon as he was done speaking. As if to punctuate his words, or twist the knife, the heavenly host provided him a similar welcome that they had given Drona. A shower of flowers fell from the sky while fragrant Apsaras sang the glory of King Duryodhana. Even worse, the second verse of their song mentioned that Bhishma, Drona, and Karna, and Burushravas had been slain unjustly. As they heard these words, Krishna and the Pandavas felt ashamed. As the brothers wept, Krishna tried to comfort them, saying, Look, those guys were unbeatable under normal circumstances. There was no way you could beat them in a fair fight. It was for your sake that I resorted to tricks. Had I been overly scrupulous, there's no way we could have succeeded. Not even the world guardians could have pulled that off. Remember, even the gods had to resort to trickery when they defeated the Asuras. But now we've won. It's late, so let's go back to camp. Sanjay says that by now Dhritarashtra's last living son, Yuyitsu, had rejoined the Pandavas. And he, Satyaki, Dristadyumna, Sikandi, the five Draupadeyas, and the surviving Panchala, Shrinjaya, and Pandava warriors all made their way back to camp. Along the way, they passed by the Karva's denuded encampment. They paused a while to take a look at Duryodhana's former headquarters, which now lay in ruins, with confused and dejected women, eunuchs, and old men peeking out from behind furniture. Sanjay says that after they took in the prospect of fallen glory, they set to looting the place. He put it this way, Those heroes entered the encampment and picked up the military treasury, many jewels, and much wealth. They also found silver and gold, gems and pearls, and many costly ornaments. They took innumerable slaves, both male and female, and many other things necessary for kingship. Having obtained the Karva's inexhaustible wealth, they uttered loud cries of exultation. When they finally arrived at their own camp, Krishna cautioned Arjun before dismounting the chariot. He advised, First, put down your bow and quiver, and I will follow you off the chariot, carefully now. Without questioning, Arjun did as he was told, and stepped off the chariot. Krishna then followed, and as soon as he left the vehicle, the ape on their banner vanished, and then the chariot instantly blazed up and burned into a heap of ashes, cremating the horses, yoke, wheels, and all. Krishna explained that the chariot had been pounded by so many potent weapons and magic spells that the only thing that held it together was Krishna's own yogic power. Everyone was thoroughly impressed by this. Yudhishthira praised Krishna, saying, Who, other than yourself, could have withstood the numerous brahmastras hurled by Drona and Karna? It was by your grace that the enemy was vanquished. It was by your grace that my brothers survived the most devastating of attacks. And it was by your grace that I survived to see the end of this war in victory. I remember at Upaplavya, the great Rishi Vyasa told me that where there is righteousness, there is Krishna, and where there is Krishna, there is victory. As they were about to turn in for the night, Krishna made a suggestion. He said, as an initiatory act of blessedness, we should camp outdoors, outside the camp, for the night. The brothers weren't about to question Krishna after all they'd been through, so they readily agreed. And so, at Krishna's recommendation, the five brothers made their camp on the banks of the stream called Ogavati. As for Krishna, they sent him on a mission to see Gandhari. Now, even if you don't know what's going to happen next, you probably get the feeling that our heroes are being set up for something, and you'd be right. One of our fellow listeners, Arjun's great-grandson, Janamajaya, knew what happens next, 
And so he interrupted Vaisampayana's narration and pressed him on how it was that they dismissed Krishna at such a moment of great instability. Janamajaya put it this way, Why on earth did Yudhishthira decide to send Krishna to Gandhari of all people? I mean, he went to Hastinapur last time practically begging for peace, and they tried to mug him. Why would he want to hurry over there to do anything for those people? It had better be a damn good reason too, if, as you say, only Krishna was fit for the job. The narrator at this frame, Vaisampayana, answered him. Perhaps I should remind you that the story is being retold on multiple frames. See episode 2 as a reminder. By the way, I re-recorded the first four episodes and added more information, so you might want to give those a re-listen anyway. But getting back to the story, Vaisampayana answered Janamajaya, saying, Your questions are very good ones, and Yudhishthira really did have a good reason to send Krishna to comfort his aunt. When he considered the ramifications of Duryodhana's death, he thought of Gandhari and the immense ascetic power that she had developed over the years. He believed that when she got news of her son's death, that she would reduce them all to ashes in her wrath. Addressing Krishna, Yudhishthira said, It has been entirely due to your protection that we have navigated this war and survived. So now we need your protection once again. That blessed lady has emaciated herself with the austerest of penances. When she hears of her sons, she'll surely roast us to ashes. I cannot think of anyone else who can handle her at this moment. Our grandfather, Vyasa, will also be there. Now go and dispel the wrath of Gandhari. So Krishna did as he was told, mounted up and headed for Hastinapur. He did not seem to have any qualms about leaving his cousins, sleeping alone on a riverbank, while three of Duryodhana's most fierce proponents still roamed freely. And so he rode up to the entrance of Dhritarashtra's palace and let himself in. At the palace, he met Vyasa. I believe this is the first time we have seen both Krishna and Vyasa together in a single scene. Krishna embraced the feet of both the sage and the king, and he saluted Gandhari. Grasping Dhritarashtra's hand, he began to weep melodiously. He wept a while, and then it says he washed his eyes and his face with water, according to the rules. Then he said to the king, I know you are wise in the ways of time, and nothing, either past or future, is unknown to you. It was out of regard for you that the Pandavas endeavored to keep the peace and to prevent the destruction of your clan. He kept control of himself and his brothers, and even went into exile when he was unfairly defeated at dice. They suffered much, living unprotected in the wilderness, and on the eve of battle I myself came to you, and before all the people begged of you just five villages. But afflicted with greed, you did not grant my request. So do not blame the Pandavas for this. I can tell you that those high-souled men did not commit the smallest transgression, judging by the rules of morality, reason, or affection. Since you know this is all your fault, it would be best that you do not blame them. Besides, they have no father, and you lack sons. You already know the great affection they hold for you. Even though they are only acting in self-defense, they feel really awful for having killed your sons, and it is only out of shame and grief that they are afraid to come to you in person. Krishna then addressed Gandhari directly. He said, My queen, there is no other lady like you in all the world. Surely you remember the advice you gave your sons before the war, which they ignored. So now, what you predicted has come true. So do not set your heart to sorrow, and do not seek revenge against the Pandavas. We know that because of your penance, you could destroy the world with your anger. Gandhari replied, You're quite right. Before you came, I was in a very volatile mind, but now you have shown me the way. As for the blind old king, he has become like a child, and now you and the Pandavas are his only refuge. That was as much as she could say before she broke down weeping. 
Krishna comforted the pair of bereaved parents a while, but then he suddenly sensed trouble. Getting up quickly, Krishna said, I must take my leave now. I sense a grave danger from Drona's son, who intends to do great evil. It seems he plans to destroy the Pandavas this very night. Equally concerned, the king and queen urged Krishna, saying, Go quickly then, and protect the Pandavas. The scene then jumps back in time to the site of Duryodhana's downfall, after the Pandavas had departed. The three Karva champions heard their noisy departure, and after they had cleared out, the trio went back to see their fallen lord. When Ashvataman saw what had become of his benefactor, he became unglued. They had to actually scare off a bunch of hungry jackals and hyenas who were about to snack on the man who once dominated the earth. Drona's son just could not accept how the mighty had fallen. Even though it said earlier that he died in front of the Pandavas, it says here that Duryodhana was still alive, although just barely, and he tried to comfort the boy somewhat. He said, Don't feel sorry for me. There's no one as lucky as myself. I lived like the greatest of kings. I enjoyed all the pleasures of this earth, and I died in battle. What better life could a Kshatriya aspire to live? But Ashvataman just couldn't get over the foul play and unfair treatment of his lord. He complained, That may be all true, but I cannot accept how they cheated to bring you down, and then left you to be eaten alive by these disgusting scavengers. I swear to you, I shall make them pay. I promise to use all my powers to destroy the Panchalas. Please, grant me your permission. Duryodhana liked the sound of that, so he called to Kripa to bring him a bowl of water, and with that, he anointed Ashvataman as his new commander, saying, At the command of a king, even a Brahmin may fight, especially one who has adopted the ways of a warrior. Thus, Ashvataman was installed as the last of the Kuru generals. With this act, the Book of Shalya comes to a close. Perhaps because of what this new general was about to do, or perhaps because the war is already over, the next book is not named for the next general. Instead, it is called the Saptika Parva, or the Book of the Night Attack, or the Attack on the Sleepers. Sanjay says that after the elevation of this new general, the trio went south, unsure of what to do next, sensing danger all around. At one point, they heard the clamorous Pandava army passing by, and they fled eastwards to keep out of sight. Finally, they set up camp in a forest not far from the Pandava's own camp. This was a wild place, overgrown and full of animals and birds. They found a large banyan tree and made their beds there for the night. The trio complained some more on the unfair outcome of the war, and then finally turned into sleep. While Kripa and Kritavarman, in their exhaustion, quickly fell asleep, Ashvataman listened to the frightful howls of the night creatures and could not sleep. Backlit by the starlight, he observed a huge flock of crows all sleeping in the branches of the tree. As they slept, he saw a huge owl swoop down on them and began to slaughter those helpless crows. The owl tore them to pieces, and their corpses rained down to the ground. Drona's son witnessed the whole thing, and it gave him an idea. Ashvataman witnessed the whole thing, and it gave him an idea. Rousing his comrades, Ashvataman explained what he'd come up with. He reasoned that since he'd sworn to kill the enemy, but it was really impossible to do that in a fair fight, that he would be justified in using a trick. He could attack them at night while they slept. While Ashvataman doesn't make this connection, I find it fascinating that he used the same excuse that Krishna used to justify all of his tricks. He basically referred to ancient wisdom that says, when you are fighting for a just cause, and fair means do not suffice, one is justified in using tricks or foul play. After all, if Bhima could justify hitting below the belt because of an oath he'd sworn, then Ashvataman could kill men in their sleep because one of his own oaths. Kripa heard him out, but totally disagreed with his premise. 
Basically, he cut to the heart of the matter and pointed out that their cause had never been just. You could only break the rules if you're doing it for the higher good, and unfortunately, Duryodhana's revenge was hardly a higher cause. He said, It is our misfortune that we have taken the side of the unrighteous, and it is because of that we suffer. Ashvataman wasn't ready to let go of his idea so easily, however. He basically said opinions are like buttholes. Everybody's got one. Kripa might think they were fighting for a bad cause, but Ashvataman did not agree. He especially wanted to get his hands on that man who had killed his father, Dristad Yumna. Kripa saw that there was no use discouraging him, so he suggested they go back to sleep and they would work on their revenge in the morning. He said, Now go to sleep and tomorrow we'll certainly put them in their place. I have no doubt that once you've rested, you'll have no problem defeating your enemies in open battle. But Ashvataman was not going to let this go. How could he sleep while vengeance burned in his chest like hot coals? Instead, he harnessed his horses and got ready for his raid. Unable to stop him, his two companions followed after him into the dead of night. When Ashvataman arrived at the fortified entrance to the Pandava's camp, he was surprised to find it guarded by a terrifying giant. This creature was clothed in animal skins and adorned with snakes. Drona's son immediately attacked it, but found his weapons were simply absorbed harmlessly by the monster. After trying out various attacks and failing each time, Ashvatam began to wonder if Kripa had been right all along. As he paused, he sensed Krishna was behind this guardian. He began to suspect that destiny was working against him, so he decided to propitiate Shiva and see what would come of it. Solemnly, Ashvataman stepped down from his chariot, bowed his head reverentially, and then prayed to Shiva, saying, I seek the protection of him called Ugra, Stanu, Shiva, Rudra, Sharva, Ishvar, Girisha, and of that wish-granting God who is the creator and lord of the universe, of him who destroyed Daksha's sacrifice, of him who resides in cremation ghats, who wields the skull-topped club, who is called Rudra. Having purified my soul, I offer myself as your victim. I offer you the five elements of which my body is composed. As soon as he spoke these words, a golden altar appeared before him, with a brilliant flame burning on top. All around, as witness to his offering, appeared a vast host of demonic beings. These were monstrous creatures with bodies of giants and the heads of animals. They were horrible hell beings who fled on blood and carrion. Sanjay said that these were all devout worshippers of Shiva, and Shiva loved them in return. These monsters totally supported Ashvataman's plan to kill his enemies in their sleep, and they encouraged him to seal the deal. Sanjay said, Bows were the fuel, and arrows were the ladle, and his own mighty soul was the libation. The wrathful son of Drona offered up his own soul as the sacrificial victim. Clasping his hands together in prayer, he said, I pour out my soul as a libation on this fire. O Lord of the universe, I offer up myself as a sacrifice to you, since I am unable to vanquish my foes. The fire on the altar then blazed up, and Ashvataman unflinchingly entered the fire. Shiva was quite impressed with this, so he appeared to Ashvataman. Shiva said, You know, Krishna is a friend of mine, and he's always been my best devotee. It is for his sake that I have protected the Panchalas. But it just so happens that the winds of fate have shifted, and the Panchalas' time is up. As he spoke, Shiva moved into Ashvataman's body, infusing him with divine energy. In his hand appeared a fine polished sword. Now charged with Shiva's energy, Ashvataman strode unobstructed into the camp of his enemy. Trailing behind like a Halloween parade from hell, Shiva's escort followed him happily into the grounds. Just then, Kripa and Kritavarman rode up, 
and waited at the gate to prevent anyone from getting away while their friend did his wicked business. Almost instinctively, Ashvatama knew where to go first, straight to the tent of the man who killed his father, Dristad Yumna. Entering the tent like the spirit of death, he found his victim sleeping peacefully on a silk bed. Ashvataman roused his enemy with a swift kick. His victim awoke and recognized his killer, but before he could defend himself, Ashvataman grabbed him by the hair, drove his face into the dirt, and kicked the prince of the Panchalas mercilessly in the throat and chest. It says that Drona's son endeavored to kill him as if he were an animal. As Dristidyumna gasped and struggled, he realized he was doomed. So he just made one request. He said, Son of my guru, kill me with a weapon so I may die like a warrior. His assailant was probably hoping he'd say that. Ashvataman said, You wretch, there is no paradise for those who kill their teachers. For what you've done, you shall die like an animal. Howling madly, he kicked and kicked until Dristidyumna was dead. All the racket roused the women and guards, but when they saw Ashvataman's demonic form, they figured he must be a powerful Asura, so they kept out of his way. Ashvataman then mounted his chariot to find other victims. The wailing of the women finally gave Dristidyumna's guards some courage, and they surrounded Ashvataman's chariot. Ashvataman killed them all with the magical blast of his Rudrastra. He then proceeded to kill every Panchali he could find. The sleepers finally mounted a defense, led by Sikandin and the five sons of Draupadi, and they all began firing arrows at Drona's son. Ashvataman drew his magic sword and shield and jumped down to fight them hand to hand. Yudhishthira's son, Pratavindya, was stabbed in the chest and died. Bhima's son, Suttasoma, struck back with a lance but got beheaded in return. Shatanika, Nakul's son, picked up a spare wheel and threw it at Ashvataman, but that only made him more angry. After knocking the boy to the ground, he cut off his head. Arjun's son got chopped in the face and died. Sahadev's son had kept his distance, firing arrows, but now Ashvataman went for him, cutting off his head before he could react. Meanwhile, Sikandi fired an arrow that struck Ashvataman in the forehead. This got his attention, and he cut Sikandin in half with his sword. Having broken their resistance, Drona's son proceeded to exterminate everyone remaining in the camp. Careening madly, he drove his chariot over the tents and bodies of his victims, madly chopping and blasting everyone in sight. As for those who tried to escape, Kripa and Kritavarman were there at the gates, waiting for them, and they gave no quarter. Finally, they set fire to the whole encampment. By midnight, this gruesome slaughter was complete, and Shiva's mob of demons feasted upon the slaughter. By then, Ashvataman was so encased with the congealed blood of his victims that his sword was literally glued to his hand. Sanjay said, Having walked the path that good warriors never tread, Ashvataman looked like the blazing fire at the end of the Yuga, after all creatures had been consumed to ashes. Having fulfilled his vow, Drona's son forgot his grief for the death of his father and left that camp as quiet as it was when he entered it. Somehow, this is still being presented as a dialogue between Sanjay and Dhritarashtra, so the blind king interrupted with the question. He asked, If Ashvataman was able to slaughter the enemy that easily, why didn't he do it earlier, before Duryodhana was defeated? Sanjay's answer was that it all had to do with the fact that the Pandavas and Krishna and Satyaki were away that night. Had they been there, they could have protected their sons and allies. In any case, following the murder of the Pandava army, the three Karvas regrouped, congratulated each other for the slaughter, and then made their way to see their king. They found him still alive, but just barely. He was puking blood and trying to fight off the wolves and hyenas that patiently awaited his death. 
The three warriors wept when they saw the plight he was in, and Ashvatama knelt before him and said, On the side of the Pandavas only seven yet live. Those are the Pandavas, Satyaki, and Krishna. All the sons of Draupadi have been killed, as well as the sons and grandsons of Virata. Your enemies are childless. Duryodhana heard the news and smiled one last time. He said, At last you have done what Bhishma, Karna, and Drona could never do. I feel like Indra himself. Blessings be upon you, and may we meet again in paradise. With those words, Duryodhana finally expired. Sanjay concluded, Having provoked the battle first, he was slain by his foes at last. The three heroes embraced each other and mounted their chariots. Even thus, the armies of the Kurus and the Pandavas have been destroyed. Great and terrible has been the carnage caused by your evil policy. After your son had ascended to heaven, I became afflicted with grief, and the spiritual sight which Vyasa gave me departed. Vaisampayana said that when the king heard of his son's death, he breathed long sighs and became plunged in great anxiety. That's all for now. It looks like an eye for an eye made the whole world blind. How much more vengeance can there be left in our heroes? Find out next time. Thanks for listening. <laughs>